Coming to you from New York City. This week and every week, it's the Ben Kissel Show. Dude, I never want to wake up in this weather, man. Oh, dude, you just want to sleep and eat fucking chili and go back to bed. In bed, dude. Yeah. Not even go back to bed. And just eat and shit chili all day long. I have so many pretzel crumbs in my room right now. <laughs> in my bed. That's, my, just, that's what I've been cuddling with. Pretzels and do you do the mustard technique? Oh, I got that mustard. I put some sriracha on them. Oh, fuck yeah. I'm disgusting, but that's fine. That's normal. Yep. Welcome to the show, everyone. I'm Ben Kissel, as always, joined by Mike Coscarelli. Today's guest, Rob Cantrell. Thanks for being here, Rob. Thanks for having me, Ben. All right, everyone. Big Ben Kissel news. Everyone's dying to hear it. Oh, what do you have to say, Ben? Well, let me tell you. 14 days. Ladies and gentlemen, I've been doing podcasts now for about four and a half years, going on five. And uh, one of the uh, constant themes throughout those years has been my consumption of beer and occasionally my consumption of booze as well. 14 days. No booze, no beer. Have I lost weight? No, I've gained weight because I've been eating Domino's pizza nonstop. (laughs) Nonetheless, 14 days, no beer, no booze for Ben Kissel. This is the first time that has happened since I was 12 years old. Holy shit. I started drinking at 12 years old, which in Wisconsin and says, hey, what took you so long, old man? Yeah. They start drinking in the womb in Wisconsin because you got to come out fighting. Mm-hmm. You got to come out and you got to let that doctor know that just because you got a degree doesn't mean you can just grab me by my neck. I'm a baby. You got to let everyone know you're a Wisconsin baby. That you're tough, that you drink, you might take a swing at somebody. That's right. That's not, uh, that isn't your mother's juices flowing out of her uh, beautiful vagina at your birth. No, that's your old chewing tobacco. <laughs> Because you were inside of your mother drinking the booze, chewing the tobacco because you're a Wisconsin baby. What I'm saying is 14 days, no booze, no beer. That's why I have Rob Cantrell in here. Oh, yeah. Because he's going to teach me the ways of the weed I've been smoking nonstop. No. <laughs> Hence the Domino's pizza reference. The delivery guy and I are on first names. His name is Ramon. Ramon. Yeah, Ramon the Domino's pizza guy. Oh, yeah. He's a great friend. Great friend. But, Rob, you are a guru. You're a connoisseur. Of healthy living and healthy lifestyle. Wow. And if you want to uh, if you want to prove that point, look no further than the album title of your latest, uh, I believe this is a music. Yep, this is a hip-hop heavy album. A hip-hop heavy album. Music album, comedy Me- music album. A comedy music album called Coffee and Weed. And really, Rob, are there any two things that you need more in life than coffee and weed? Love. But mostly coffee and weed, <laughs> uh, and air, oxygen. But no, there yeah, there are yeah, two yeah. things that I definitely enjoy. Enjoy. That's uh, definitely like my, my water slide. You know, like my uh, water slide type of moment. I love it. Got to. And you do a lot of. Uh, one of my favorite bits that you do. You discuss the wonders of grapefruit. Oh yeah, that was an old bit. Yeah, totally. Love that grapefruit stuff. Yeah, love fruit. Getting going through a huge mango phase right now. Really. I have an orange on me. A good orange is always nice to have around. Wow. Especially if you're smoking a lot of weed, man. You need that citrus. You usually feel bummed out. You shouldn't be eating all that pizza and salt, Ben. I can I give know. you the whole lowdown of how I how I operate. And that's it, this, this is, is why you're here. I want the full lowdown. It's it's apexing too. It's ramping up. Yeah. Uh this is this is ideally what but lately I've been on I got I got the uh mini bullet. Do you know what the mini bullet, the blender? I've seen the mini bullet. Got it bullet. for Christmas. For those that don't know what the mini bullet is. $35. Stay up past midnight. Watch NBC. 
I guarantee you, you'll watch an infomercial. You'll see an infomercial about the mini bullet by somebody who may or may not be thrice divorced. <laughs> Maybe his children aren't talking to him. Yep. It doesn't matter about the But he's got a goddamn patent. He's yeah. got a patent. Yeah. And he knows Probably. how to work that yeah. mini bullet. He's going to get out of that trailer park. He's mm-hmm. going to pay those kids college tuition. Yep. He's got the mini bullet. Uh, I yeah. love the mini bullet. Mini bullet. So banana shake. First thing in the morning. Okay. One banana and a half. Three ice cubes. Boom. Honey. Cinnamon. Little bit of milk. Blend. <laughs> like a milkshake to start your day, but all banana, all ready to go. Banana has good feeling, positive. It it's, it's, has stuff mm. that makes your brain be happy. Bananas do. But can you put hot sauce on it? Uh, you can't put hot sauce on it. But you know what's good mm. with hot sauce and also healthy? My breakfast and I, I just Instagrammed it this morning because okay. I'm a big hot sauce dude. Two eggs over hard, grits, no bacon. Hot sauce, the grits. I mean, egg, hot sauce, the eggs. Okay. And then tons of coffee, water. Boom. Boom. All protein. Grits has protein. Protein equals energy. That's what you're looking for. You right. need energy. But then the thing is, the energy, if you don't do anything, if you just lie in your bed, for example, yeah. let's just say hypothetically i've been lying in bed at 9 p.m every single night for the past 13 days because new york city has been colder than uh than antarctica could ever imagine to be and so i've been hibernating underneath my sheets uh after you consume a lot of energy theoretically you're supposed to go exercise yeah I'm not- or you just get really fat fat i know you you used to be a large person I now used to you're be so th- thin and so good looking mm, so no, tall no, no no yes yes ben ben your self-image of yourself. You're, 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 I, I saw you from afar. I was like, who's that handsome young guy? Mm-hmm. Lean, mean. All right. Well, we didn't bring uh, you in. Sorry disturbed. to get homoerotic here yeah. on you. You know, I'm married. I got a kid. So, I, you know, I could say these things without yeah. feeling weird. We didn't bring you in here to start lying to our audience. Right? No, no. Please take it easy. I'm just, I, I'm saying uh, is so, that I don't think running's good. Don't run. Mm-hmm. My new thing or... 100 push-ups, four sets of 25, and I do it while I'm writing or I'm doing this. Just a little bit of toning. Yeah. Uh, Ideally, it goes banana shake, then French press coffee for the rest of the day, 100 push-ups while I'm I'm writing. I get up, knock out 25, do some emails, do some whatever, get down, do another 25. 25 isn't crazy. Right. A fat guy can can, can, can do 12. I mean, I don't know about all that. But you don't think, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. A big guy, a guy that's out of shape can do how many push-ups? I feel like, you know, this is very similar to how Mario Van Peebles wrote the movie, I believe it was called Solo. <laughs> do you remember that movie, Mario Van Peebles? I know Mario Van Peebles, and he made a movie called Rapping, which is an awful hip-hop movie, but he also did another film called Delivery Boys, which was about breakdancers and delivering pizza. And well, it was that's, awful. Yeah, delivering pizza. And it was a sex 80s comedy, so there was a lot of tits in it. This is early 80s. Oh, well, very, now- very, very, uh, yeah, it's, it's out there. Well, now you've captured my attention. Yeah, it's a, it's a Ben Kissel bad movie if you look up yeah. like bad movie look up delivery boys and it's uh mario Van peoples and it's all about break it's uh a guys that all deliver pizza and they're have a breakdance group and then there's a bunch of like it's r-rated so it's a bunch of like it's sex comedy like joystick all that old school like american virgin porkies 
I love it, man. Back in the day, Porky's was really all that we had. I mean, nowadays with the pornography these kids are looking at, they're 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 on the iPhone, on on the iPhone, on the, on the Instagram, on, on the, the ins- Do you ever like? Dude. I try to stay away from porno, and not that I, I do like it, but I'm married. I just try not to go down pornholes as much. Yeah, if I'm on the road and you know I gotta knock it out, then I gotta knock it out. But but Porn- now now like they're, they have Twitter feeds. So you're just like maybe twittering and trying to figure something, and then all of a sudden you slip onto some Jenny Triple X, and she's right. like th- throwing her lips wide open for you on yeah. your phone. Right. It's all right there, man. It is all right there. If you're on Twitter, go to UK Girls. I always found that to be good. Yeah. And then there's one called Rex Erection, and it's all about foot fetishes. But I'm not a foot fetishist, but I was trying to get into it. Turns out I just don't like feet. Yeah. I don't know why. I wanted to be a foot guy. Right. I feel like uh, Tarantino's a foot guy. Eddie you Murphy. Know? Eddie Murphy's a foot guy. Yeah. Very successful people worship the foot. I wanted to be a foot guy. Turns out I'm just into typical buttholes. Buttholes. What about elbows? Elbow. I don't know. I'm not. I'm, I'm not Dude, sure. You could about the start elbows. the elbow thing, man. Then the word the on the street is like Kissel's a really fr- girls might be into you because of that. Like God, he just wants to lick my elbow. You hear about Kissel, man? Oh yeah, he's he's fucking the elbows. He's just sucking on that girl's elbow all night long. All night, <laughs> all night. Did you find out, Mike? What happened with Mario Van Peebles? What's that movie? Is it Solo? It uh, is Solo. Nailed what it. was Solo? What did he do? I don't know. He fought a bunch of people alone. Okay. I think that's what Solo is pretty much all about. So you got an orange with you. You're living like the uh, the main character. Seltzer. You got a seltzer. Lots of seltzer. All day seltzer. That's right. You're you're eating. You have the same diet as the kid from Aladdin. Yeah. You're just running around the uh, running around the. Um, I just had two slices though. I had a grandma slice, but with no cheese, like heavy sauce. Oh, what pizza? Yeah. Pizza. When did you have pizza? Right before I got here. Today. Just today, yeah. I'm not a health nut. I just right. I walk. I don't own a car, so I walk yeah. everywhere. That's another key. Walk, sodas, don't drink the sugar. Yeah, I'm Only drinking coffee. A, coffee. I'm drinking a Diet Dr. Pepper. They say it's the worst thing you can drink, and it's probably giving me cancer. But it's the best, as we discussed, it, it is the best diet soda. It tastes like regular Dr. Pepper. And there's just something about Dr. Pepper that I mm. haven't had in a while, and I do like it myself. It has a little extra kick to it. I love a good Diet Dr. Pepper. Truth. Time for some truth. Ladies and gentlemen, if you are out there and you're su- uh, suffering from some sort of uh, addiction, you can be 14 days without the substance that you currently believe you're addicted to because I was addicted to alcohol and I'm 14 days free and I'm going to start drinking again today. No, you're not. You just got you got to make it to 21 days. No, That's 14 my new- is my 14 is fine. 21 days is when the mind changes. The mind changes. If yeah. I change this mind, the whole goddamn world's the you whole thing's going to fall 21 apart. 21 days you won't want to drink. I can't change this. People love my brilliant mind. Yeah, but they don't I mean, but it's not booze. You're loud and drunky right now and you're not even drunky. Yeah, that's true. It's the diet Dr. Pepper. Yeah. That's a good point. That's a good point. You could just ride that, uh, you know, you could just ride it out. Mm-hmm. That's you know, right. just the, you know, you get in the moment. It's all about being in the moment, trying to figure out, like, what's exactly in front of you. Kick your heroin addiction. Kick your, kick your, uh, you're addicted to PCP. You know yeah. what? You're not going to have the weight gain an alcoholic has. You're going to be buff as shit. You're going to be buff. You're going to be fighting cops all fucking day. Fighting cops. And then sometimes, one of these times, when you bring your machete on the subway, you're going to get arrested. Yeah. 
So you got to stop the PCP. You know how much calories you you, you you know you can just knock out getting arrested. I mean, you just really you could work off of three steak dinners just getting right. re- arrested. Twenty three day in the tombs here in New York City, beneath Chinatown. You thought Chinatown smelled bad, and that's not a racist thing. There happens to be a lot of outdoor fish markets in the heat of the uh, summer here in New York City. These are just it's a magic combination of odor that yep. is indescribable. But kind of arousing sometimes. Um, kind of arousing, depending on who you're walking by and uh, and uh, what kind of fish you're looking at. And they have that weird fruit, like that spiky, weird fruit. I like tried that. it. You did try it. That's it supposed is... to give you a boner. Oh, is that why I That's had sex why... with it after I tried it? <laughs> well, that makes all the sense in the world then. Yeah, it's supposed to be an aphrodisiac in Jakarta. or like I did not know that. Yeah, it's like a sacred fruit for them. When I lost 160 pounds, uh, Rob mentioned walking a lot of places. Obviously, if you live in uh, any place other than New York City, you probably don't have to walk a lot of places, or you literally can't walk a lot of places because each bar is located 10 uh, town blocks away from each other. And Walmart and Target aren't nearly close enough for you to walk to. So what I did, I would just park my car. It was a yellow Geo Metro. It was longer than it if I laid down. And it was a beautiful car. And it was a convertible. Oh, nice. And uh, I have some pictures of it my friend just sent me from college. It, it was it was quite a dreamboat in that car, and I had a lot of, uh, well, I didn't, well, okay, nonetheless, I drove around a lot alone. You had, it. no, you had, you must have gotten a hand job in there once. Well, you know. You're by yourself. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so I would just park very far away in the parking lots, and then you get yourself some extra steps and you burn some extra cows. Yeah, yeah. So that is one good, it, that is a life hack. A Ben Kissel life hack. If you want to start losing weight, park farthest away in a Walmart parking lot. And these things are goddamn, I mean, the, they are, the parking lot alone is a metropolis. Yeah. They're huge. They're the size of like eight football fields, mm-hmm. you know. So you can get your good exercise there. Rob Cantrell, you were on the first season of Last Comic Standing. There's an NBC show. I'm sure a lot of people have heard about it. I think it's on what, like it's eighth, tenth season now, something like that. It's insane. Amy Schumer got her big break on there. A bunch of folks did. I was a top 10 finalist on the very first season of Last Comic Standing on NBC. Unbelievable. 2003, I was on national television with three years of stand-up experience underneath my belt. Three years? Three years. Wow, you were a pro. You were a legend. I knew what was going on, for sure. Uh, No, I did three years. I was uh, in San Francisco. I was working at a little private school. What were you doing? I was assistant to the kindergarten teacher. Oh, my God. <laughs> it was what sl- a bad kindergarten teacher. You can't take care of this all by yourself? Yeah, yeah. You need, no, she needs an assistant. Those kids are crazy, What man. is she, Donald Trump? And, an uh, assistant? Yeah, you need assistants. Shit okay. goes down. And it was a private school, so the kids, I mean, it was like a nice little San Francisco private school. And, nice. And I, it was just a 20-hour, you know, 30-hour week job that I got. Um, and then I was doing stand-up at night. And just uh, just cranking it out. And what uh, places around San Francisco? Because I know San Fran has an amazing. I got there in '99, and that's okay. when uh, definitely when I stopped drinking. Then that's when it was just all coffee, and I learned about stand-up. That's where I did my first open mic. That's where I on Market Street, and I realized how hard comedy was. I did well, right, but I right. also looked at it. I was like, oh my god! And then I went to the Punchline and saw their showcase night, and I saw Al Madrigal, I saw W. Kamel Bell, I saw Arge Barker, and I was like, holy shit, these guys are so fucking good. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, need to, I need to write. I gotta be, I just knew 
how hard stand-up is. Even before, like, that was kind of my reason. I, I didn't start doing stand-up till I was 26. Right, right. So, because a lot of it was, like, I just looked at it, I just sensed that it it would be just a ass load of work. Right, right. And I and it's even more than I ever dreamed it was going to be. Far too much. <laughs> it's so much work. And the pain, the it's pain so is, is, is so much oh. more intense than one could imagine. That's, oh, that's you must why love the... being a comedian. You just get up there and you get to make people laugh. No, it's awful. Laughter now sounds like shrieks of horror. It's Laughter is no longer the great joy that it used to be. As soon as you start doing comedy, you realize that laughter is simply something that is required you of your job. Yeah. It's like grease at McDonald's. You gotta have it. Uh, gotta have it. So you saw in Al Magical, of course, he is the creator of all things comedy. So uh, yeah, Al and I go Al. back. Very good friends. Uh, yeah, very good friends with Al. I love Al, um, and he's helped me out a bunch. And definitely was definitely kind of an older brother mentor when I first started. I don't see him as much. He's so fucking busy. Right, right. Um, so you saw Kamel Bell, W. Kamel Bell, Arch Al, Barker, Arch, uh, and then was just like, holy shit, this is a lot of work. But I also saw the scene, and then it was like a whole. There's a whole list of all the open mics and coffee shops in San Francisco, and I didn't have a car at the time, and so I would just, and I just stopped drinking. I stopped hanging out with my college friends. Okay. I stopped. I had to hang, stop hanging out. I stopped doing that weekend, get fucked up three day, nights a week, and just went in so hardcore, like completely dedicated. You know. It was definitely a Mike Lawrence and all those guys, how hardcore they did the open mics here. I did that in San Francisco in 99. Like, I had no life. All right. I did would go to the coffee shop, drink. My life was hitting weed, smoking weed with comics. That's what I loved about San Francisco. That right. Here in New York, it's a little bit, oh, you're high. But in San Francisco, it's just like, yeah. It's like having a beer. It's not a big right. deal. So every And I was from the East Coast. I grew up on shitty, shitty weed. And then I went out to California, and it was like, Holy shit, everybody has amazing pot and everybody's super liberal with it and everybody breaks it out. And I'm in this cool ass city that just makes you be creative because it's mm -hmm. all a bunch of freaks and weirdos. And now, yeah, it's gotten douchey, but it's still fucking a sick town in terms of weather and getting around. If you oh, like absolutely. Just a, if you like just jeans and a sweatshirt, which most dudes like, that's the fucking weather. I only dress like Bruce Springsteen. Yeah, all That's the what time. I always say. <laughs> jeans, a t-shirt, and a little red handkerchief Chip. hanging out yeah, of my yeah, back yeah. pocket. A flannel wrap around your waist, ready to go. Got to. And San Francisco is also a great city. If you do get depressed and you do want to commit suicide, Golden Gate Bridge is the place to do it. Yeah, yeah. So it's, there's a dark side to California. Uh, yeah. Um, so you saw these people. And by the way, Mike Lawrence, the, uh, he's a great comedian that he referenced. Google Mike Lawrence. Check him out. He's been on. Uh, on great uh, joke writer. John Oliver. Intense, show. intense worker. Intense worker. Uh, you know, don't shake his hands. Um, <laughs> but, you know, a little a little bit of a clam factor there. But he's a great guy and, and he's a good friend. So check out Mike Lawrence's work. Um, but I, I would quit drink. I just did comedy. I just right. went all in all things comedy. I, I just went all comedy and coffee and weed. So coffee to keep me going, right? And then weed to take out the how scary it is well, see, to let is go of reality. Like when you go into comedy, there's no halfway going in. You right. have to go all the way in. That's why you have to just because there are Mike Lawrence's, there are other guys that are going to work twenty times harder than you that want it more than you do. So you have to like. You have to write. You have to write, and then you have to perform. It's all writing and performing, repeat, repeat, repeat. See, marijuana, weed, 
it occasionally makes me a little bit paranoid. It makes me mildly, uh, I'll, I'll get some oh, negative thoughts does. rolling through the head. I don't know if I could go on stage super stoned. I feel like I took uh, mushrooms. There's a show here in New York City, and I'm not going to name it because it's extremely illegal. Uh, what happens on the show. But basically, you're supposed to get stoned before you go on. And I said, screw that. I've gotten stoned. I've been on stage before. It's fine. So I took a bunch of mushrooms and went on stage. That was a trip and a half, dude. That was intense. I went to the four corners of my psyche. I ended up getting amazing amounts of applause solely. But it was hard. Yeah. It was very difficult. But weed, I thought it was also extremely difficult. Don't you get the panic attacks on occasion if you get uh, super stoned? You're like, there's 1,500 people out there. Yeah, I mean... Ideally now, because I'm working at a professional level and making money at it, and uh, ideally I would like to not be high on stage um, and then smoke out afterwards. Like kind of go all day crystal clean. Ideally it would be wake up, banana shake, and coffee, then swim laps. Whoa. Swim laps for 20 minutes, then go meditate for 10 minutes, write for 45 minutes, nap, and then go out and do comedy. That's amazing. And then smoke a ton of weed after the show with my friends and my bros and right. chick bros. Have you had an experience on stage where you just got entirely too baked before and then as soon as you were up there like, oh, the lights are bright, I don't want to be here, I'm sweating, I'm melting, and everyone's looking and laughing, or my, is my zipper down? Yeah, I mean, no, I mean, I always can kind of handle my weed on stage, but I wouldn't, I don't kill as hard. I don't have the thirst... To hit them right in the fucking nose. Right, right. Which you kind of have to do in New York because everybody's so goddamn funny. So you you lose a certain edge, but what you do gain is kind of a play around, which can kind of be nice. You kind of are a little bit more lucid, and I think that's drinkers do the same thing. In the moment. You're a little bit more in the moment. You can riff off the top higher. You 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 can kind of jump in, and you know sometimes you just go for it, and you can go, like, I did a show... Uh, a few weeks ago that I kind of got high before, but it was just like a bar show. But I riffed the first five minutes, and it was all funny. It was all brand new. It was all goofy. But at the same time, it ended up kind of weird. I didn't, I didn't finish. You know, comedy's just so, like, you want to start strong, and you got to kill at the very end. Got to. It doesn't matter how hip the room or how square the room is. Mm -hmm. They only remember that last fucking joke, which sucks. It's like a horror movie. You got to start with a nice scare. Then in the middle of the movie, you find out, oh, you know, she's the the niece of the man who murdered everyone in the clock tower. You can kind of be mediocre in the middle. Right, and then at the end, as long as she murders the dude that it was her uncle, then boom. I'm like, okay, great. It ended with the beheading. I'm totally happy with everything that I just saw, even if the first... Even if the middle 45 minutes were a bunch of nonsense. <laughs> it's the opposite of a sandwich. Yeah, complete opposite of the sandwich. You know, you want the middle of a sandwich to be good. It doesn't really matter if the... Uh, if it's bread, bread. Yeah, if it's bread, bread. Or what uh, kind of wrap it is. Yeah, yeah. So you just did comedy for three years. You, uh, you studied all these people. You were all in. And you I was smoking weed deep. all you through were smoking that. De- uh, you were smoking weed. And then last comic standing, this idea for a... a stand-up competition show that had never been done before and to my knowledge i don't think there was anything like it nothing like before in comedy i try people don't understand like it was so fucking weird to be on that very first season there's only the guys on that very first season understand how fucking weird it was because there was nothing before back then the big thing was to get on friday night lights i remember all the comics had this weird friday night lights that was the name of it it was like 
after it was late Fridays is what okay. it was called. It was like after Conan on NBC, and it was all stand up. It was a half an hour, and it was like Greg Proops and all the you know it, it, yeah. Benson was on it, Arge was doing it, uh, Al was doing it. That was like a big thing. I remember seeing Mitch on there, and if somebody got oh if somebody got a Letterman, that was like they're huge, huge because this was I, this was in the nineties. I remember talking, it was 99, so I started right at the end of like when it was really bad. So I, right. all those guys before me went through that mid-90s, and people don't understand, like telling somebody you were a stand-up comic in 95 okay. was as cool as telling them you were a cop. Like it was like nobody gave a fuck about right. stand-up comedy. All the clubs were closing, Carrot Top was huge, nobody cared about Stan and that's I where have a lot Con- of respect for Carrot Top I'm just gonna say that I right love here Carrot Top now. but I'm saying he was he was the guy making the money he was the Louis C.K. the Sarah Silverman, Silverman. the Seinfeld yes. of his time he was yeah. the guy getting in Time Magazine he was the guy you know all of that um, so I, I kind of came from those guys so then all of a sudden in 2003 this guy Mike Spiegelman a good friend of mine that I did uh, all the shows with in the mission that I did all kind of it was they were the hipster rooms of San Francisco and Spiegelman we were at an open mic called the uh, brainwash which was a laundromat and I was doing my set and he was like there's this uh, open audition over at this uh, and it was like a theater place and you just got to be there at noon and wait in line and uh, and it's just an open audition for a show on NBC and that's all we knew right right and uh and I didn't have to teach that day. For some reason, I didn't have to teach. And I, I remember taking the bus over there. And I just opened for Todd Barry. So I was opening all around the Bay Area in Sacramento and doing one-nighters, but also doing, you know, my life was, st- I didn't have a girlfriend. I didn't, I didn't have a social life. I just did stand-up all day. Right. I had the notebook. I had all that. Um, and watched tapes. I had, had a VCR in my room. All I had was a Bill Hicks tape and, and a Richard Pryor tape, and I would just watch those every night. Right. And uh, and then I, I remember I just came back from Sacramento working a whole week with Todd Berry. So I was feeling good about myself. Like I was feeling like I was making money at it. Right. I wasn't a stud at it, but I was one of the local guys that could definitely kill. You were feeling like a professional. I was feeling like it was that yeah. first sense of uh, cockiness. I was really... Like now I look back, like I really thought I was the funniest motherfucker in the planet. And you kind of yeah, have to have that. Yeah. In the beginning, you're not going to get on stage. You learn down the line like, oh, everybody's funny in their own way. But in the beginning, it's a pure ego. Like, Got to. Fuck these nerds. I'm funnier than all these motherfuckers. Right. And, well, you have to because you're yeah. also terrible. Yeah, you're you know, terrible. So the first, the, you're, the, you're overcompensating for all of this. You have to. And now, of course, you go on stage and you're like, yeah, this is just where I belong. I walk on stage. Yeah, you yeah. know, and this is like, it's like they're, the difference between uh, personality, the difference between persona. I don't know uh, if this is everybody's experience, my personal experience, and uh, let me know if it's yours. It begins to just become a very much, much more of a gray area. I remember going on stage. Being off stage before I would go on stage, being super nice, and then go on stage and you feel guarded, and then all of a sudden you come across as an asshole. Yeah. And then you come off stage and everyone's like, where did nice Ben go? And you're like, I don't know. I guess he was nice Ben got scared and became mean Ben. Yeah. I don't know. But as you do it more and more, your actual personality begins to come out on stage. Yes. And so there isn't the big difference between on stage persona and off stage persona. Right. I don't know if that's uh, uh, true for you. I was kind of the well. opposite. I'm very introverted off stage. And then on stage is kind of where I can be loud and, hey, fuck you, and be as weird and go off into, you know, I was doing very weird stuff even back then uh, on stage. 
Right. And uh, it was just kind of a place. Yeah, I, th- I thought if you're going to go for it, really go for it. Right. And I still think that. But you're so also you... right. Laughs come when the audience is, when the audience feels comfortable. Well, laugh- if they're on tension. So if you're not being yourself, so the That's easiest right. way to ease the audience is to be completely yourself, like completely at zero. That's right. And then they're at ease, and then you can just sneak jokes in, and then you get them popping and start small and build them up, build them, build them up, build them up, build them, and then you got them going. Right, so, and make the audience feel as if they're getting a true interpretation of who you are. Yeah, so yeah. when I started, no, it wasn't a true inter- It was just kind of a loud, I'm, you know, just desperate right. 20-something comedy. But right. I had a few good... I had a few good bangers, as the kids say. That's that what I they're could, all saying. That, you know, for 15 minutes, for a good opener, I could start, I could open a cold-ass room and I could close it and bring the motherfucker on. Right. And so, that was my specialty. So you're on the bus, you're going to the last comic standing audition, Dishing. you're going to wait all in we knew, line. We didn't even know the name of it. I knew it was people from The Daily Show, and it was this guy, Rob Fox, who was a director and producer of the very mm-hmm. first Daily Show. And, and this then is it 2003. Barry so, Katz. Okay attached to it and Jay Moore and then it was somebody from Survivor it was this weird so you would read it in the paper when I first when I got the audition Mm -hmm. and they said keep on going I read it like in the trade Hollywood reporter like this new project that got picked up right and they didn't like it didn't even have the title and uh, so I got in line and it was all the local comics everybody was there it was like a hundred people but not as much crazy as now so it wasn't like a super you know, around the block, but it was out the door and around the thing. Well, what happens now is, uh, from my understanding, and I feel so bad, when I first got here, uh, there was a lot of people who, I'm from, uh, I moved up here from Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and I was the only one in my group of comedian friends to move up here. A lot of people come uh, in groups of five or six. Yeah, it was very intimidating. I literally knew nobody and had to work very hard to get to know people, which Probably was a benefit at the end of the day. But now, uh, with Last Comic Standing, I don't, I don't think it's happening this year. Maybe it is. I'm not sure. But the line that goes around the block, it's a prop. Yeah, yeah. These are prop. human props. And people uh, would email me, message me, uh, being like, yo, can I stay at your place in Brooklyn? And of course they could. Um, I'm coming up to audition for Last Comic Standing. I'm going to wait in line. And they would travel around where they would be auditioning because they were auditioning in Vegas, they were auditioning in L.A., and they were auditioning in Chicago and New York. And people would travel around following Last Comic Standing and waiting in line. And, of course, they never got seen because now it's all set up. If Your manager and your agent set up a personal private meeting beforehand, and so the line is just a prop. So if you're a comedian looking to do Last Comic Standing, don't wait in line. Uh, just you have to jump the line because you're never going to be seen unless you're uh, dressed like the left shark from Katy Perry's Super Bowl halftime show. Yeah. But that's the other stat that I hold that I'm kind of proud of. I'm not proud of that show. I know it's not something to be bragging. about. It is something to be proud of. But I am the one about. guy that stood in line that made it to the top ten. Well, I mean that's the what one I w- guy out of all out of millions that after all these right. seasons and seasons because after the first season we did huge numbers. We did bigger. We did. We were doing Friends. Like numbers, and they, the, who, they didn't see it. Right, the, the the suits didn't see it. The industry didn't see it. It was Barry Katz and a couple people at NBC, and they were like, "Holy fuck! Look at these numbers. This right. is fucking huge." Because as I get said, two thousand three stand up wasn't what it is now. There wasn't the hot podcast. Zach hadn't popped. The the alt scene hasn't hadn't formed. The Zach comedy Galifianakis. of yeah, those guys. Yeah. That whole movement wasn't 
they it was definitely happening and cool as hell on in the underground, but it wasn't mainstream sure. like it is nowadays. Well, you had uh, the Rafifi days. There was a great bar here in New York City in the East awesome Village show that I got to do a lot right. called Rafifi. It had since closed down um, because I believe the owner didn't exactly get a liquor license, and the city shut him down for that. Yeah. Uh, but some greats came from there. Aziz Ansari, uh, uh, John Mulaney, Nick Kroll. Eugene Merman. Eugene show. Merman. Basically, everybody who was going to become famous within a decade or so um, started their Rafifi. So that was sort of the underground scene. But yeah, like you were saying, 2003, that hadn't burst yet. That hadn't become hadn't a burst. mainstream form of comedy yet. No, no. that hadn't. So it was kind of, I was in this weird little 2003 but uh, we did huge numbers, and I, all I was saying is, like, then the next year, it got even bigger and bigger. Right. So all, every, every comic wanted to be on that. Every agent wanted to be on that because Ralphie and Rich and, and me, I, I got a ton of work. Like, everybody started working and filling in rooms. Right. So then it was, like, this mad rush to get on the show. So it was like it, it, I was in the middle of this weird three-card money that happened. Yeah. But I made it to... Number seven, with no agent, no manager, no nothing. And then there was a good, like, three weeks where I was the hottest kid in Hollywood, where my phone just went... Right. And, I mean, you get that first sense of heat and all that stuff. Like, I got a bunch of auditions. And I was still living in San Francisco and still teaching. And then I moved down to L.A. and I got an apartment. I got a manager and started working. And uh, and I stayed in L.A. for a year and a half. But then I didn't... you know, I was three years in. I made it to number seven, and so I'm not. I didn't make a household super name out of it, and I wasn't really a reality show personality. Right. So, I was just a good enough comic that had good jokes. I had that. People remember the surfing joke, and then right. the Bobbert joke, and the surfing joke. I had a good surfing joke that Joe Rogan went nuts for. That loved right. it, and then uh, I had a bunch. I had a couple other pieces, and then I had this big. The, the guy I had to battle was Ralphie May, and it was like one of the highest rated episodes was our big battle. Ralphie May, an amazing comedian. Amazing uh, comedian, amazing guy. I just worked with him at the Borgata. Uh, Ralphie is one of the most successful road comics out there. Oh, yeah, That's he's huge. He's, he, he'll play any theater. He's not the coolest, he's not the hippest, but he's going to sell out, and he uh, he's just crushing it right now. I love it. So the line that you were waiting in to get into the first, uh, you, unbeknownst to you, last comic standing audition, they actually saw the people that were waiting in that line. Yeah. So it was it was as authentic as it was ever going to be. Yeah, it was the two guys from Bob Ross and, I mean, Bob Bob. and Rob, uh, Mark. Yeah, Bob is the two guys from The Tonight Show. Right. And they were in the audience. It was just those two guys. And you would go up, and it was a stage, a theater, and uh, just do your... And I just came from doing a whole week at at the Sacramento Punchline, which was... With Todd Berry. With Todd Berry. Right. So when you were uh, when you finally got cast in that, and I know that process in I just got passed there. They were like, Rob... Do you want? Uh, we want to bring you down to L.A. Can you make it to L.A. next month? I said sure, and they bought me a flight, and then I did it in uh, in uh, at the Laugh Factory, and that was on the second episode. So I was in L.A. in the Laugh Factory, and I had to go up in front of Joe Rogan, the girl that was in uh, in Precious, the movie. What was her? Oh, Monique. Monique. That's right. And Buddy Hackett. Oh wow! And so those were the three, and I killed. I also had. I was just on a hot streak. I killed in San Francisco, and then I killed. I was just that that cocky, yeah, 
I was 29 years old, single. I've been doing this since I was 26, so all I did was live and breathe stand-up. Right. You're and, at the craps table. Prostitutes are starting to blow on your yeah, dice. Guys, People are coming I'm over hitting. asking I'm for money. Seven. Yeah, I'm yep. hitting. I'm hitting. I'm hitting. You got, you got a long-lost cousin calling you and be like, yo, I think you're doing really well right now, yeah. Rob. Can I come visit you? Yeah. That was all happening. It was a, it was a fun, fun. I, I, I'll look at back on that. So then I, did, I, I, I got passed in L.A., and that was uh, in front of all the industry. Right. In front of everybody at the Laugh Factory. And then I went to uh, Vegas. And then we did another one in Vegas, and I killed there. And then I went in. We had to live in a house. We were in a mansion. Well, this is what that I want to talk about. That was the whole thing nobody else, all the other seasons never did. That's what I want to talk about. Reality shows. I've worked with a lot of different producers. I've done a lot of different pilots and things like that. And I know reality television, and I know how it's... Uh, how it manipulates storylines and how it manipulates people's characters and how it can tell any tale. Every single person is every single thing, so you can just exaggerate one person's pettiness, politeness, uh, you know, alcoholism, or uh, you know, douchiness. You can you can elevate one person's character traits and make that define their entire being. Right. True. So when you threw yourself into this house under this reality show. Um, umbrella with producers manipulating your entire life at any points did you feel as if last comic standing when you were a part of it um did you find that they uh mistreated your character or do you think that they represented you in a relatively accurate way it wasn't a relatively accurate way what was they the, were what was the character me. they what was the character they gave you because the character they, they played me was was and this was the one this is and i didn't play the card correctly now that i look back i remember ralphie telling me like you gotta play this card uh, the character was I was a uh, kindergarten teacher during the day and a stand up at night and I was really right. clean like wholesome motherfucker. Really, they didn't they didn't pick up on the the fact that you smelled like uh, like a, like a greenery at all. Yeah, times. I think they there was a yeah, and I had some pot jokes. I actually talked about legalization on season three when they brought me back. I was I, I went on a whole rant about legalizing pot on NBC. Great, uh, which was 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 good. Uh, and it, it, that was a decent set. I had a bunch of pot material, but no, they played up the kindergarten teacher thing. But they were good producers. They weren't that evil. Like the guy that did it my year, and I don't think he did it any of the other years. It was part of the Daily Show. Like they went into it to make something kind of cool and unique. And it was kind of supposed to be in the beginning, kind of tongue in cheek with the reality thing. Like mostly, like yeah. play the stand up and then kind of get them all in the house and then kind of uh, just do kind of. You know, film stand-up comics being stand-up comics, but try to get... You know, Jay was behind it, and he was a stand-up comic, and he's he was very hands-on then, and uh, they, they just wanted to try to capture the funny. So I can't sit here and say that th they were evil and manipulated me in any way or... You know, they but they definitely played up. He's a kindergarten teacher. That was that my, was That was your angle. That was the suit's angle on me. And was there... A, who'd you share this house with? So my year, it was Dave Mordahl, uh, Rich Voss, uh, Ralphie May... Corey Kahaney, this uh, comedian Tess, one name, and then it was Dat Fan, who I was a roommate with. That was a bunk bed right. on national television with Dat Fan. Now, Fan. Dat is one of those so, guys. He had a lot of heat as well coming from that show. And yeah, he won it. He ended up, well, that's right, he won it. And, and every he, comedian hated him. They that, did, they did. Every comedian hated him. Um, Why do you think every comedian hated Dat Fan so much? What was Because he was a manipulator. In he, he played the card. He cried constantly on TV and I told see. his sad story. And then he kind of had a really hacky West Coasty act. Right, right. That comedians, especially New York comedians, just weren't fucking having at all. You right, know, being right. from San Francisco, San Francisco comics are a little bit more snobbier, and definitely like 
you know, Pat and, you know, we, I was walking, those guys were just there and blank a patch. Like San Francisco had a little bit of an altier edge. That's what I loved about San Francisco that you could kind of do alt rooms. And then they also had two a rooms in town that were punchline and cobs that were just as mainstream as they get. Sure. And you learned how to play to that crowd as well. So you got to learn both sides. Would you do it again? Would you go on nowadays, 2015, would you go on another reality show? No, because I mean, I wouldn't, no, I wouldn't try. I didn't. Would you? Is it because you don't? Would you trust Rob Cantrell as a brand now because you've uh, established yourself as a uh, as a musician, as a hip hop comedian, as somebody who is obviously very proactive in the legalization of weed movement? We'll talk about that uh, coming up here. Uh, would you trust your hand? Would you trust your life in the hands of one of these sleazy, manipulative? I wouldn't producers? audition if I came back. It would be like to do a set or something. But no, I wouldn't go through the comedy competition gauntlet. Any right reality now. show though? Would you do any of them? Mm, if it was a cooking show, I thought. Uh, no, they'll mess with you on a cooking show, man. Fuck that delicious. Have you seen that? That's really good. The Vice, I haven't seen that. That's uh, Action Bronson's. Oh, okay. Shout out to Action Bronson. That's a really good uh, cooking show. All right. So, I don't know. People say reality television. Reality television, you know, a documentary is reality television. A cooking show is reality television. Uh, but well, I I'm going to go to prison so I can be a star yeah, of that lockup show. Lockup show. I can't wait to star in lockup. Uh, it's going to be great. I've been in solitary confinement for 18 years. My life is miserable, and my only friend is a fly. Uh, but, you know, at least I get my TV credit on MSNBC on Saturdays at 9 p.m. Yeah, you might get a Netflix special out of it. It'll be yeah. big. Yeah, 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 I'll be huge. I'm not worried about anything. Live from the lunchroom, yeah. It'll be big. So you were saying in the early 90s it wasn't uh, – comedy was nothing, and that's funny. Uh, because- yeah, because then I built up – like when I got that big break was 2003. So right. that was the beginning of the 2000s. So that's right. And 2003 was also the first season of The Chappelle Show. Sure. Right. Which I was thinking about today was just so Chappelle's show. S, there's all been this hype around SNL, which is awesome, and I love fucking SNL, and I and I love even the new stuff, and I think it's brilliant. Sure, but that Chappelle show, in terms of sketch comedy, yeah, they were just hitting the sweet end of the bat. And to do a sports analogy, they were just fucking crushing oh, every yeah. sketch. Was just. Perfect, just slamming. Yeah, and uh, they were they were far superior. SNL has uh, been on the decline for some time. Although I do think uh, some of these recent episodes have been have been coming. They, they've been showing signs of life. I think that Mooney, that, uh, that kid. I like his short films. Uh, yeah, I like. Uh, yeah, I like. The There's new some stuff. good. Stuff. I like the new stuff, but I, right. I'm just saying that Chappelle, 2003, the two big shows that were on television, definitely Chappelle was big right. and probably bigger, and at the end probably made more money and all of this, but. Our ratings, it was it was Last Comic Standing and Chappelle Show where the two talked about Right, shows. and then Daily Show had just begun with Jon Stewart, I no, believe. No, Daily Show had been since 97. Well, but I think Stewart just took over for Kilborn in 2003. He, he was already on air. Like, he was what? already killing it. So it like, seemed that like... was established good, good, good show. Right. But it, it's it, it's not like it was in 2000. I think 2005, 2007 like, was when it went to, like, astronomical you know, but the seeds of the future of comedy were all being planted in 2003. 2003. Yeah, and and you're certainly a member of the uh, the future of comedy and the present of comedy. But Thank you. Ben. Do you think I'm, nowadays? But go do, ahead. Do you think now uh, with the all of the saturation of stand up? And I know like people like Colin Quinn say when stand up gets cool, it gets ruined, and all these things. Do you what do you think about the the importance of a late night set of a late night spot? Does it matter as much as it did in the 80s? early 90s when it would make a career i think anytime you get on television is good of course yeah that's the thing and i haven't been on i've 
I got to do what was it? I got to be on the Colbert Report uh, last year, which was nice. I did a scene with Steven on on the Colbert Report. Oh, I hadn't been awesome. on TV a lot. That's what I was saying. Like, right. I felt like the huge jump and then the fallout, and it's just always. So I'm saying, yeah, late night sets are important, and especially if you kill in with youtube these days especially if it's funny it's like funny is good like, go funny not that's what like i always medi- say if you want to do comedy yeah but some people just hit like maybe get like mediocre funny right right but if you get a cold smash fuck em up set like soder i think on his first conan was a fuck em up set like dan soder check him out he's got a great show on sirius radio uh there's there's certain people that have had some really good i haven't done a late night set since i got to do craig kilborn okay but i was only three years in and it was it was mediocre at best, and it was like the tail end of his reign, so it didn't really catch any heat right. at the time. So I haven't done a late. I did the Access show, the Gotham show, the Access AX, Live. That, yeah. so that was fun, but I don't know if that's a. Yeah, the late night set is a is a chess game because you have to. The guys that are really good at the late night sets are joke writers, you know, hardcore joke writers. And right, I don't, right. I can do that style. That isn't the style I'm completely in love with. I well, do like I to like rant a little bit. Right. I like to dress it up. I like to go a little bit weirder. And But the guys that kind of have A to B, kind of have that mathematical sense of stand-up, which is dope and it's good to have, right. those are the ones that are really good at a late night set and that can be like, okay, I'll move this around. I'll put this one. Oh, I got this one from three years ago. Right. And then I'm going to put it right here. And there you go, sir. Craig Kilborn, you mentioned Craig Kilborn, made a major career mistake when he went to be an actor after he was cast in a movie as a bad guy. I believe he screwed over somebody. Uh, he cheated on some girl, and she ended up falling in love with some character. I forget. It was a romantic comedy. So he quit his own show to become old a- Old school. Uh, was it old school? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, to become an actor, and uh, and that all fell apart. Um, nonetheless. But he made millions. I think, I hope that he's still wealthy. I haven't seen him in forever. Yeah, that's the, the I think he walked away and had a, sh- like, yeah. I don't but, know why you leave your own show. I'll never understand it. But let's get to marijuana. Yeah, uh, yeah. Proposition 7.1, it passed in Washington, D.C. Right. And this was to legalize marijuana for- for fun consumption, or was this a medical marijuana thing? Uh, no, this is recreational. Recreational. Yeah, all across the board, yeah. Okay. Yeah, D.C., and I grew up in D.C. and was born there, and uh, but I grew up until uh, I was 10, and then we moved down south to southern Virginia to a hardcore like little rednecky town called Buena Vista, Virginia, uh, and I lived there until I was 16. What brought the family down there? My dad was in politics. My dad worked for the mayor, the first mayor of Washington, D.C. Before that, he worked for the Veterans Committee and did worked on bills. There's like pictures of him with uh, President Ford, and he was just a young guy that went to Capitol Hill, became a staffer, and then um, he moved on after doing federal government. He got a job as in the D.C. government as the assistant to the very first mayor of Washington, D.C. Who was that? Walter Washington. Walter first, Washington. He's okay. a black man, very smart, very smooth. And yeah. his counterpart was Marion Barry. My dad knew Marion Barry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they were young guys in D.C. just scrapping away. And Marion Barry, the crack mayor, who ended of up course. smart, he was super leftist, like Black Panther Democrat. And my yeah. dad was old school southern uh uh kind of middle of the road democrat like sure a little bit of a dixie crap maybe yeah dixie crap but uh but but my dad came from a coal mining family like his dad was a child worker never went to college or anything my dad was a complete badass like i look back on like i would never touch like the, some of the things that he did but he passed away when i was 10 years old when we moved to this town he got a job 
at a college and we lived on campus and it's called Southern Seminary. It was a full, it was a two okay, year yeah. girls college. But he no, that's was not a bad busy- place for a 10 year old boy to be. Speaking of porkies, that sounds like a storyline that never got made. Yeah, it was pretty. I never got to do my teenage years there, but uh, it was, it, yeah, it was, it was, a, we lived on campus. We would eat in the mess hall for free. We had a house. My dad had a house for free. But when he died, he died in a car accident suddenly. Mm. Uh, he died, he fell asleep driving his car. This is a true story. I had, I, I have a joke on it. It's on my album, but I always would say, yeah, my dad, uh, passed away when i was uh, 11 years old uh, you know don't get sad you know he he died um in his sleep you know the only problem he was driving a car at the time yeah yeah it's <laughs> not the best time to fall asleep. my father was a truck driver he fell asleep at the wheel one time and crashed his truck and, and did he more- die he didn't die but he fucked um, up his truck he messed up the truck and i think he got a couple of a uh, couple of black marks on his truck driver resume um, but uh, but he was able to survive. But it's terrifying when you hear that your father's been in an accident. What happened? What, what were you doing that day when you when you found out about? Uh, your oh, you're dad? gonna try to make me cry. No, I'm not gonna make you cry. No, I am. If you're like me, you'll be thrilled. <laughs> you know? Can't wait. I can't wait to get the news. It is what a- that dad's dead. Let's have a party. And he he was a tough motherfucker. My dad definitely like I. You know, I'm 42, so my, I came up in the 80s, in the 70s, so my dad spanked the hell out of me. Dad, oh, same with here. With the belt, yeah. uh, the whole nine. And he was from a tough Southern family that didn't take any shit. Right. And so it was kind of like, uh, w- 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 Great Santini, do you know this book? You know, the, the, the Pat Conroy? Like, it, it's kind of like the military dad. Like, okay. I had to say yes, sir, no, sir. Very strict. I had a complete fear of my father. Like, he would yeah. completely... Like I had death. He, I had like if he lost it, he could kill me. Right. Yeah. Oh, that, I, that type of yeah. fear. Like I, that's how I grew up with my dad. But then he died suddenly, uh, and it was it was awful. He was going to pick up my brother from sports camp in Virginia Tech, which is in Blacksburg, Virginia, and he was driving an hour. And he got up that morning, and he was just driving to go pick up his son from sports camp, and he fell asleep at the wheel. My mom was home, and it was just me and my mom, and my older sister was doing a exchange she was in Europe and my sister's 5 years older than me so she's I was 11 she was 16 my brother's 13 but yeah I was there in the house when the state troopers came up to tell my mom yeah and that was a rough thing it's never see. good no it's not I saw my mom just drop like I all I saw was the state trooper come and she sensed it, and then they told her, and she just fell on the ground, like just her whole body just went. And she's from Michigan. My mom's Midwest, nice girl. Right. And had me when she was 30. I mean, had me when she was 40. My parents were much older. My parents didn't grow up as 60s or hippie dippies. They grew up 50s. They grew up, you know, de- definitely a little bit tighter than most parents. Yeah. And, uh, but they were cool enough. My mom was an airline stewardess back when they were supposed to be hot. Yeah, yeah, And my yeah. mom, like, uh, she did date one of the uh, Three Stooges, and uh, she's got some really Which cool Which one? Stuff. I don't know. She won't talk about it, but she would date, she would hang out with celebrities. Like, oh. she was a hot airline steward. She used to yeah. live in the village, and she had a purple Carmagia, like a little car. She's a cool, she was a cool chick, and she still is a cool chick, and she's still alive. And, uh, but they told my mom, and yeah, it, and I was 11, and then next door was a family, and it was this wrestling coach that lived there. The wrestling coach of the school called VMI, which is the Virginia Military Institute, which is in... Speaking of an intimidating guy, that dude sounds terrifying. He was terrifying. He was 6'2", and he's in the wrestling 
uh, Grappling Hall of Fame. His name is Ike Sherlock. Shout out to Ike Sherlock. And he lives in Kentucky now. I saw him. He came up to a comedy show. And he's great friends. Strong, big. But the only thing is, it's like, I was more scared of my dad than Ike Sherlock. My dad was more intense than Ike was kind of like cool and hung out with college kids. And he was like a badass wrestler. Like he went to the Olympics, was just a full on. And his and his and his son, I could talk about Jeff Sherlock, was in a band that played with Metallica. They were all speed metal dudes. Oh, awesome. And Jeff was this. Uh, he was kind of like, and we lived in this dirty little rednecky town, but I knew Jeff Sherlock, and Jeff had long hair and, li- yeah, and played yeah. in a speed metal band, <laughs> and he would beat the shit out of rednecks. So rednecks would fuck with me, because we were kind of like the preppy family, right. and Jeff Sherlock, who's who got his ass kicked by the Wrestling Hall of Fame dude, Right. Jeff Sherlock would whip, I saw him beat up like three rednecks in a row, like just went around, pow, pow, pow. it was just easy, animal, complete animal, he ended up being a Marine and went to the Afghanistan, and I know he killed people. Like, oh, got to. Yeah, he, he was completely didn't do college, he was in a metal band and then went into the Marines, that was that guy. That's the most terrifying dude Nicest in dude. U.S. Hill, uh, history, yeah. forget Chris Kyle. Yeah, yeah, he was a... Uh, Jeff, shout out to Jeff Sherlock. He was, uh, and he's he's kind of a urban legend in Virginia around that area. Yeah, just that name alone, Sherlock, sounds. Uh, yeah, it's a he scary always wore ass tiger name. camo pants. Always had nunchucks. Would be playing like oh, Judas yeah. Priest out his window oh, doing you know nunchucks. That. He was the first dude that ninja stars that would show you ninja stars and shit. He was you like know, the Joe Rogan of our neighborhood. That's with fucking so funny. Jeff Sherlock, man. Yeah, you uh, know a dude's serious if they listen to metal, but then they cross cultures with weaponry. Yeah, if they go. Asian, if they go like Asian with weaponry, but they listen to nothing but old school, yeah, old Midwestern metal slash full music. Metal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He toured with like uh, he was in a band called Nosferatu, and nothing else Great. matters. The video there's he's wearing a Nosferatu T-shirt. Oh, that's, and that's so Jeff dope. Sherlock's band. But Jeff Sherlock's a full-on Marine killer. But now I heard he's got a kid, and he was he ended up being an alcoholic. And he went sober, and he's like sober, super nice. Christian in Kentucky somewhere. So uh, you went over to this house when you were 11 years so old. So they brought me over to the family. Jeff Sherlock's dad had to tell me what happened. So your mother wasn't able no, to tell No, my mom you. couldn't talk for three days. Ugh. Dude, my mom lost it. And I remember, yeah, it was my older brother. My brother came home from the camp. And this is the sad. I should, I should definitely write a book about all this. But, yeah, there was a, we spent like three days in bed, just full, yeah. just crying in our bed, my older brother. And uh, yeah, it was Comatose. just just com- just full on like you know it's just that's how life is. It just right. comes around and just smacks you in the face when you don't see it. And it's but it's happened vice versa. And that's the same thing as last comic. Like I didn't see that. I couldn't have planned right. that. I couldn't even have dreamt that shit happening. And then all of a sudden. I was live at the time like uh, I was living in a hostel in San yeah. Francisco. I was broke, and then. A month later, I'm getting calls from CAA and William Morris, right. and I'm getting money checks from NBC. See, like it just goes. Yeah. Whap, whap, but that's the whap. weird thing about it, man. That's the weird thing about life. When you end up making these decisions, right? At the time, you're like, "Which way am I going to go, right or left?" And then in hindsight, you're like, oh, "Of course, I went right. Of course, I went left." Yeah. Like everything just sort of uh, seems to fall into place when you look at it in hindsight. You're like, oh, "Obviously, this is the way that that was going to go." Yeah. You know, so, um, but now, I mean. But I couldn't have pictured it, and I couldn't have pictured coming to New York and, and right. doing what I do now, and I, I have a three-year-old daughter, and uh, I've got a wife. I never thought I would be a married guy. And yeah, when did you get married? I got married. I moved, Sanford, so kind of the last comic standing heat fell out, like, I was doing Because it. you didn't play up on the kindergarten teacher. Didn't play up PC, on the kindergarten, and nice. I didn't have an hour, so when right. I would go out, 
I couldn't do an hour. And this was before, like, I don't know, the agents couldn't figure it out. And I signed with Barry Katz. And Barry Katz put me out with, uh, I got signed and Jay Moore really liked me. So I toured with Jay Moore. And then I had a falling out with Jay Moore, really hardcore falling out. What happened there? You know, I, I don't like to talk about it, but, you know, Jay was really nice to me and good dude. And I accused him. And, you know, yeah, he was taking material from me. I was opening for him. So I called him out. Burt Kreischer was there. And Jay and I, Jay was like, I'm not working, not going to take you out on the road anymore. And it but was you felt three like gigs. You were. Um... But I was young. I was stoned. I was cocky. But he was stealing from you. Uh, I can't. I mean, he did, ended up did taking a joke of mine later down the line I saw on YouTube. But it's, uh, you know, it's just a weird thing. I w- I'd rather just let it go and I forgive him. And no, right. at the time, the one I called him out on was a joke about chess and everybody down when I look back on it I'm like yeah a lot of people do have I get, I get weird about the stealing thing cuz I was kind of a hardcore hard liner but now that I get older in comedy I look back and like there's a lot of people that have that chess joke that I was talking about right, so there was right, right. There was there was some discrepancy there, and oftentimes, I mean, these themes. A lot of people think that every thought that they have is unbelievably unique to them, and yeah. no one can. And possibly especially when think you're in it. your first few years of right. comedy, you're like a super. You know, you're you're super. You're at your purest form, and now that I'm kind of seasoned, like there's something like I've seen a million of those these type of jokes. I've oh, seen a million of these right. pot type of jokes. I've seen, but in your little open micer community. You don't know that yet. And you're the only one that had it. Yeah, you, you think know? you're the only right. one that had it, and you're like, and then you, you know, a few years later, you're like, oh, everybody's touched on this shit, you know? Right. Um, so let's go th- back. So there was just a professional fallout, and I had to walk away from LA and Barry Katz and that whole situation. And then I came to New York. Did Jay Moore sort of uh, blacklist you? No, I wouldn't say it was. It, I, I hit him straight in between the eyes yeah. with what I thought. He told me he didn't think so, and that was it. And so it, bygones. You don't think he did any behind the scenes emails with Barry being like, yo, you got to get this guy. You got to not rep this dude. I don't like this guy. No, I'm Jay no, Moore. No, nothing no, like that. I don't. I can honestly say those guys looked out for me. And that's yeah. that's the weird thing is, is that I could sit here and throw shade on the situation um, and it probably would make great podcasting. But at the same time, Jay Moore looked out for me. First guy to give me my break. Barry was the first guy to give me my break. First right. guys to get me out on the road. I probably wouldn't be in the position that I am right now if it wasn't for those guys doing that. So, right. so at it's the a end little the- tricky thing for right. me to talk about. Um, so, because I do have kind of love for them, but professionally, I don't want to deal with them. And they probably don't want to deal with me. You know, right, right. But if right. you know, down the line, if it happened, it happened. If I saw him on the street, I'd you know probably kick it with them and talk to him because. Yeah, I had great times, you know, doing those shows. But the cool thing about that was I did have a relationship with San Francisco still had my back in terms of like I got work at the punchline and clubs still right. liked me and I don't think they trashed me. No. That's your I don't think they did anything shady. Okay. I think they were really cool about it. I think they were just like he's young, he's cocky, he's probably stoned and angry and um you know, just we just stopped working professionally together. Right. Well, those good. relationships have you get your first manager. Some people get to have that relationship for the rest of their lives. Right. And then it's the majority like, don't. Majority don't. No. It's like the agent and the manager thing, it's a lot like having a girlfriend. And when you know it's not it was kinda like that. It was mm-hmm. like 
we were great in the beginning, and then it was just like it went wrong, and we all know we, we just knew. It just, oh man, I didn't fit in. I just wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't me. Keep telling me what it's like to have a girlfriend, Rob. I've, I've never had one. I, I, uh, tell me what it's like. Tell me. Tell me all about it, please, know, God. But you know when you don't. You just know when it's not working. Right. Of course. You know, there's like like four months down into this, you're like this. What's the, this isn't it. You right. Know? And I think that's what it is with management and agents sometimes. It's like you, you have that first six months, but then you're like, you know, I'm still looking for that person that's perfect to, yeah, of course. Uh, to figure out what I'm doing out here. It is, it is very difficult to find the right person to collaborate with. There's no doubt about that. So you were in the South. You were 11 years old. And then when did you move back up to uh, the D.C. area? D.C. when we're 16. When I was 16, my brother finally graduated from college. And my dad bought a townhouse in dc when in 19 in the 50s and no during the 60s during the riots oh jesus so he must have bought it for like eight dollars eight dollars and we still had it and they got That's paid dope. off when he died so the thing about it is when he died there was enough money to send me to private school my brothers all went to public school i went to public school in dc so I kind of have this weird thing. I went to public school in D.C. We couldn't do anything. My dad, But then my dad died and all this insurance money hit. Right, right. I got sent. Uh, I didn't get sent. I was kind of in this weird rednecky town, and I was getting C's. I was doing terrible. Yeah. And my mom was like, we got to. I was dipping skull, Copenhagen. Yeah, you got to. Yeah. I was hanging with the wrong crew, and my mom uh, suggested looking at some uh, boarding schools. So I went to a boarding school in Lynchburg, Virginia. A little small little boarding school there, but we moved back to D.C. that year as well. So yeah. I would go to school in Virginia, but then come back to D.C. for my summers and breaks or whatever. And then I lived from D.C. from 16 till I was 25, and then I moved to San Francisco. But then nice. college I did in Ohio. I went to Denison University. What did you get your degree in in college? English. Very good. So creative writing. So I was always a good creative writer yeah. in high school. That's how I got into college. Like I would do C's, but in English class, I could write essays. I was a good writer, and yeah, I yeah, could yeah. teach. I had a really Mr. Hopkins. I got to look back, and uh, I was terrible speller. It was before like supercomputers around to do spell checks, but he loved my stories. I could write, and uh, yeah. he would give me straight A's. Like all this one teacher, and uh, and he was like the biggest badass in this little private school, and definitely th- had some clout to get yeah. me into college. And, Man, I uh, wish I knew now. I wish I knew what the future was going to be uh, in 1995 when I was failing spelling class, Mrs. Marciniak, giving me C's, D's, F's. And who gives a shit? Who gives a shit? They would give me so much shits, call me half dyslexic. and Ridiculous. Ridiculous. And now everything's spell check. Autocorrect. Everything. Autocorrect. On your phone, right now. I can Jesus. write stuff. Google, Google. I'm livid. I'm yeah. livid over the terrible grades I got. And, and and then just whippings from your pops or yells or all that. Oh shit. my Christ! It was awful. Uh, awful. So, uh, what do you think? Let's talk a little bit about marijuana legalization. This is obviously one of your uh, one of your celebrity projects. Yeah, I would say. I, uh, yeah. So legalization. Just being in San Francisco and California, how liberal it was. Definitely, I stopped drinking. Yeah. And I made this conscious. And um, drinking's really expensive too. Drinking, you know, if you're going to go out and get shit faced at a bar, what's that? Fifty bucks. Fifty bucks, easy. Yeah. Or if you're good, being a good guy, hey, I, I get the round, you get the next round. Those rounds add up. Those rounds. If you do two rounds, that's, sixty bucks. That's sixty bucks. Yep. You want to hit the. If you're, you got to hit the bartender. You want to be friends with the bartender. Oh, absolutely. And it's only good karma to tip. Life is giving, giving, giving. So you got to tip that dude. Mm-hmm. So it ends up being. 
Whereas a bag of pot in California, I can get a bag of pot for $30, and with a yeah. one-hitter, I could survive for four weeks, you know? Right, right, right. And everybody else has pot. Colorado's making bank money. They made $610 million last year. They're Isn't that amazing? They're projected $700 million this year. So next year, they're in tax revenue alone. They're going to make $98 bucks. How long do you think it is before? Obviously, D.C. passed it, but now the feds are getting involved. How long do you think it's going to be before all 50 states, the entire union, is pro-marijuana for recreational use? I don't know. That's going to be a little bit tricky, but yeah. uh, but these farm states, man, these rednecks I think with love the money, weed. I know everybody smokes weed. That's, Everyone, everybody. That's the thing. But nobody, everybody has. The thing is, once you start having kids and everything else, and jobs, dude, I wish and mortgages, my, yeah, all that stuff is responsibility. Like it's it's cool to smoke weed when you don't have any. You're sick. Yeah, you should be firing up all day, every day, all right? day, all day, day long, dude. All I do is smoke weed. Yeah. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, so I think, yeah, it's going to be legal. I think I knew Republicans didn't care about it. I knew people at the core of their center. That's why I always pushed it. Right. I was like, this is the one issue that I think Republicans really don't give a fuck about this. No, they're a pro. Republicans will get high with you all day they if you break it out. They slam drugs in their fucking like, faces, yeah, dude. Yeah, they love getting fucked up. Yes. Everybody loves getting fucked up because life is hard. And yes. you're going to get... Pain goes down, and you got to numb it out somehow. Right. Um, and pot seems to be one of the safer ways. But lately, I've been meditating as well. That was the other thing: is meditation, yeah. meditation, meditation. I don't think wake and bake all day, every day, is that good for you. No, it's not going to help out. For anyway. me, it would be meditate and swim in the morning, and then after my set is done, to bro out, smoke weed. Right. So now, you or go a- see a movie and smoke weed with friends. You know, you have a kid. So what if you if your daughter starts smoking weed a little bit too early, you're going to have to. Uh... Yeah, I would just tell her um, stay away from pot and alcohol until you're 18 because the brain is growing. Right, right. It's all about the brain. The brain is super powerful, but your brain is a muscle and pot is a psychoactive drug. Meaning you're fucking with your brain. So you got to remember that when you're smoking pot. There is this misconception that weed is healthy, that it's good for you, that it's, uh, you know, it's the apple a day that's going to keep the doctor there, away. There, but, is, I mean, there, is, there is tests that show that it, it's blocking cancers and doing, you know, there's, I think the getting high part isn't the big deal with weed. Yeah. It's, it's the municipal, it's it, making a drug, making the hemp paper. It's like 18 different things. And the getting high thing is just very small fraction of what it's really there for yeah um but the other parts is like it is there's is studies that it's blocking these cancers and putting them back with these oils and all this stuff uh rick simpson i think is the guy that there's that everybody's talking about that's blocking a lot of skin cancer is oh is this uh municipal pot oil that's the one that's gonna get me man they say the skin is the large uh the largest organ on the body i'm six foot seven i got a lot of organ yeah. There's a whole. This is a cancer paradise. Yeah, cancer, and and we're funky white dudes. Oh yeah, dude. Sun, not a lot of probably didn't suntan it up. Probably didn't lotion it up back in the day. Just Definitely burn it not. out. Just burn it out. Got yeah. to. Got to. Got to. Yeah. Just get that sunburn to start the season off and yeah. work off the sunburn for 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 your tan. Um, How's fatherhood? Do you like it? It's hard. It's hard. I love it. I I mean I love my my daughter is the coolest. The cool. When I say the coolest. My favorite thing in the world, and just a good—I could tell already at three and a half. Like she's my favorite person. She's not even ripping beyond heads my off. wife. Yeah, she is crazy, and she's 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 me. 
She's me. She's part me. So that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. I see what's going on with her. I see, you know, I see, it, 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 it's, it's, it's as mind expanding as acid or drugs is having kids. But it's, there's also, you don't have to. I also want to say that to my single friends. Also, I also think, like, if you don't want to, don't do it. And, you know, you can live a very fulfilled life without having kids. Right. But at the same time, for me, it's definitely, it's harder to be a douchebag when you're a dad. Oh, totally. The douchebag, being the single dude, especially a dude with money and success and fame, that that douchebag swing that happens. Right, right, right. You've got to watch. And having kids, you can't be a fucking you can, but if you're changing on your wife with your, I don't know what kind of you're fucking right. even super douchebag. I don't know. I don't want to judge anybody because you know I don't know what. What's no, definitely. Going on. There's a new you're you have an elevated status. I look at you differently because I know that you have a kid. Yeah, you know yeah. what I'm saying. I look at you with a more. I uh, I assume you have more wisdom, more knowledge, more life experience than I have, or anybody has that doesn't have a kid. Well, it's a lot like every phase in life. I remember graduating from college. I had no idea what I wanted to do. And that's when I almost had a mental break. Like, I was just so scared to getting a job and figuring out what I wanted to do. I remember that intense fear. But then you figure it out. Yeah, Yeah, I got a job right out of college. I was freaked out. Yeah, yeah. And I wasn't, there was only enough money to get me through college. I didn't have a trust fund or anything like that. But I went to school with trust fund kids. Right, right. So they're all going off to Colorado. I'd been waiting tables since I was 16. I went back to waiting tables, and then I got a job as a salesman from a friend from college. I was doing- Dreams come true, man. I was head head hunting. I was doing 100 cold calls a day in Reston, Virginia. I would drive from D.C. I would be in traffic all day for three and a half years. That's what made me break. I had to wear a starch suit, had a company car, cold calling all day long till like seven to make- you know, I didn't make fifty grand like that year, but it was all commission. You know, Every, it was that sales yeah. hump, hump it, hump it, hump it, and then the weekends I would just get drunk, and then I would just look at myself in the mirror like, "What the fuck am I doing?" Right. And I always wanted to do stand up. I remember cutting out. Uh, yeah, the first book I ever did a book report on was Wired by John Belushi. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I knew all the Saturday, I love Saturday Night Live, and I knew all of Eddie Murphy, knew Richard Pryor albums back and forth. Uh, always loved. I was. I wouldn't say I was the funniest guy in school, but I was the second funny guy. Were you worried when you had the kid? Was was were you guys planning on having the kid, or was it sort of a happy uh, accident? No, we were plan. Like, I guess what happened is I got married to my wife, yeah. who I moved in with after being a couple years. Uh, after being here a year in New York, and I knew her from college, and we dated for like a year, two years, right after. Uh, when I was in D.C., like my senior year, and then the, like the year after. And yeah. I loved my wife, Anne. I love her. I always did. Yeah. And we had a, a breakup, but it wasn't a bad breakup. It was just like, hey, we're going in two different directions. Right, right. And I don't know what I'm doing with my life, but, you know, she was the best couple summers of my life. And uh, and then, but she was, it wasn't a bad breakup, and she was always this chick. Like, whenever I was in New York, I would take her out. Or I would always, like, when 9-11 happened, I would send her email, like, Ann, are you all right? You know, and then, you know, we would hook up. We'd totally have sex when I, like, yeah, yeah. It was, so it was, like, over 10 years, she was just that girl that I loved. <clears throat> and then when I moved to New York, she started calling me. And I was single and on the road and hooking up. And 
yeah, and yeah. I, I totally had the Hannibal birds. Like, I'm going to be fucking single. I'm going to make this money. I'm going right. to be banging these chicks on the road. But then I felt the fame kind of go away. I was in Williamsburg. I was in with like four different roommates. And then Ann started calling me. And then we started dating for like a year and a half. And she, uh, eventually, I just moved in with her. Because I lived in Williamsburg. And she lived downtown Brooklyn. And it would take me like 45 minutes to get over there. And so eventually, I moved in with her first. Yeah. And then that worked for like three and a half years. Then we got married. And like I said, uh, she, <clears throat> it was like I was becoming, so I was like 35 going on to getting close to 40. And so was she. We're the same age. Right, right. And she wanted to ha- try to have a kid. And I was like, if I'm going to have it with anybody, it's going to be with this woman. Right. It's not gonna, she's not We're- some showbiz weirdo. Uh, groupy thing like this right, is a girl. Yeah. This is that's that's what I like about and that's what I like. The, I do have a life outside of show business. It's like I have my stand up thing. I have my crew, but when right. Anne doesn't eat, my wife doesn't even smoke pot. She's got her shit together. She's one of the smartest, coolest girls. Right. Not into the entertainment industry at all. Were you worried when you had the kid you were going to have to change your uh, your career? Yeah, I it's I still am. I'm still I'm I haven't made it all the way, you know. I'm still grinding and doing gigs. So yeah, there's always that, and that that fear is good. It's over the last few years, you know, it's pushed me to, you know, I did some warm up for the Daily Show. I got on Colbert. I did acts. It's definitely, and this was all without an agent. Right, and right. And then I did stuff with the, the marijuana logs, and I've written. So the pressure has kind of pushed me in a new direction, kind of re, to completely rebuild myself after reality television right because you want your daughter to be proud of you i want my daughter to be proud do of you me. instill the same fear in her that your father instilled in you no i don't yeah i, I don't yeah. i don't I, I yeah you can't hit your kids these days you <laughs> no you cannot you cannot look at adrian your peterson no you can't do nothing and i think even yelling like i've like even yelling at them freaks them out because they'll start right. yelling whatever energy you put into them right. you're gonna get it right fucking back right right i agree Like this weird echo thing so if you're gonna be like you listen to me she's gonna go you listen to me she's gonna do it right back to you when she's frustrated how how about you know last question we got to get out of here yeah but it is interesting um you know just having a daughter and how that would change your perspective on it's feminism but like you know even like you know women in comedy this debate goes on and uh and me personally i i i think the it's harder. Women, to be ch- women should be in comedy. Women are very funny. Very uh, funny. So I don't. And very so I smart. wish that everyone just get over uh, whatever whatever the hiccup is. Um, you know, go out there, be funny, work hard, and you'll succeed re- regardless of orientation, race, gender, or whatever the. It's just multiple, telling jokes at the end. That's of the day. it. Um, but uh, has, did you find that you have been more aware of problems that face the female community? Are you more like because I would. I know, on it's scary pin, not shit, pins and needles, dude. but I would definitely be like much you know more observant. Slender Man? Have you been reading about Slender Man and the chicks stabbing each other? There's like, a uh, great story that uh, Rob just brought out. Slenderman, Slenderman, as it was said on the news, someone said uh, these kids like Slenderman. So apparently they <laughs> thought the fellow was Jewish, but it's Slenderman. And uh, these two girls, they were 12 years old. They're in Wisconsin, actually, my home state. Big shout out there. Yeah. They brought a friend out to the woods. They stabbed her multiple times because they believe Slenderman uh, wanted uh, them to do so. The woman, the girl, ended up surviving. They're on trial right now, currently uh, being charged as adults, which I think is completely insane because by the 
fact that they thought Slenderman was real, it means their minds are as juvenile as a mind can possibly be. That's what I mean, be. as a kid's brain. So you, when you're yelling at them, they, they just got like acorn little brains. You know, they can talk right. and have emotions and shit, but... So you hear these reality stories... Reality is, uh, they're, they're in a fucking... You know, trippy world right now. All I can, kids. I, I mean, I I read those news stories about this Slenderman case, and I'm sort of like intrigued, interested, and I hope these kids don't get tried as adults. I hope they just get you know a, the education that they need, and their brains are going to grow out of believing in Slenderman. Uh, trust me on that. <laughs> but now that you have a daughter, you have to be like, oh shit. shit! What if my daughter takes her friend out to the woods, or she's the victim, or or she is the uh, the perpetrator, and starts stabbing her multiple times? Know, How do dude. I make my daughter not do that? I know it's uh you. The, I don't know. You just have to have faith and love and and life and but shit goes down. I also know that shit goes down. So there's always that card that comes over, but you can't be afraid of it or you can't hide away from it. You just have to be cool and confident and move forward. And yeah, it's just like graduating from college. When you have a kid, you have a kid and you just fucking deal with it. It's life. If your dad dies, right. you fucking just deal. You know, you get handed a card. I listened to the Jermaine Fowler podcast from last week. I mean. Everybody gets dealt cards, right. you know, and everybody's going to get some shit hands and everybody's going to get some good hands, mm-hmm. which is what you make of it. But no, I'm completely frightened. But at the same time, I I did. I asked. I said, what? I said, I asked my daughter, what makes a good papa? And she goes, love. So I think if you just love your yeah. kid, man, I think the thing is you, I got to provide. So that's scary and money and all that. But. That's just a part of life's gig, but you know, if you just fucking love your kid and talk to him, you know, it's right. like, you know, and because you don't, know, I don't know how long I'm gonna be on this earth, right? You know, so with all that like, weed, you never all know. That, you know you <laughs> but I could live forever. I don't know. Yeah, with all that weed, you never know. The jury's still out on weed. You could, you could live another Nobody, 150 years, or you're gonna die tomorrow due to weed, weed-related incidents. I think it cuts down on the stress. I mean, it yeah. does provide stress. It's tricky. It's tricky, but I think it is. You use it as a tool. It's not the end all or whatever, and it's not the only tool that's out there. Right. You know, some people have psychoactive problems, and, and lithium or whatever might be the tool that they need, or meditation mm-hmm. might be the tool you need, or spirituality, or Jesus, or Buddha, or whatever. What's that? You know, the Beatles, whatever gets you through the night, man. Whatever right. gets you, everybody's fucked up. We whatever can... gets you through the next day, do that shit. As long as you're not killing people mm-hmm. in the name of Slender Man. That's right. We can say PCP is yeah. one of those things you don't need. There might be one dude that, you know, PCP was good for. He wrote, he fucking painted some crazy ass painting on fucking super dust. No, Russell Simmons was on dust all through fuck. <laughs> Hip hop was built by a dust head. That dude was smoking straight up PCP, yo. Uh, Him right. and Rick Rubin. Rick Rubin wasn't smoking. I, I heard Rick Rubin straight edge. But, uh, but Russell Simmons was straight up dust and he's like the most successful man in music. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But not anymore. He's meditation. <laughs> I think meditation. That's I think that's the the gig. Is uh, yeah. I think our minds are just is just are powerful, but they'll drive you crazy if you don't learn to quiet it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, thank you so much, Rob. Thank you, Ben. Super interesting. You got me out funny. You got a new album, Dreams Never Die. Check that out. Where can people get this? On iTunes, Dreams Never Die, Rob Cantrell. Amazon, Dreams Never Die, Rob Cantrell. My website, robcantrell.com. Awesome. And uh, you're on Twitter and all those things? Yep, on Twitter, Rob Cantrell. 
Great, man. Um, so make sure to check that out. Follow him on Twitter. Uh, Mike Coscarelli, check him out on Twitter. Make sure to listen to his great podcast, uh, Social Villains. And then, of course, uh, go to Cave Comedy Radio. Check out Roundtable of Gentlemen, last podcast on the left, and Abe Lincoln's Top Hat as well. And uh, all right, everyone, thank you guys so much. I'm Ben Kissel, and we'll talk to you soon. Peace.